The Third Man Podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun celebration of Jack White and is in no way directly affiliated with Third Man Records or the man himself. For the definitive history of Jack White and his music, please consult your local Jack White. And for everyone else looking for a home, you found one here, in a place so seedy. Enjoy! is inside the tree right now you can't see it from the outside because the, the, the fire is inside yeah right. hold on no, hold on there's a podcast starting i have to call you back hi everybody paul here hoping everyone out there is having a great summer obviously jack white is on tour he's got the supply chain issues tour and everybody we've been loving hearing and reading your reviews of the tour on our various social channels. If anyone would like to send us some audio of their personal review of that tour, just send it to our email address. Record your review of the Supply Chain Issues Tour concert that you saw and send it to thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com and we will run that on the show in the new season. But anyway, I'm here. I'm all by myself here because James is off being a new dad same as he was for our season finale. James is on parental leave, as you might call it. And in the meantime, before we get season seven up and running, we wanted to take our annual look back at the extended interviews that we conducted during season six. So this past season, we've had a lot of great special guests. Some of our biggest episodes to date, including Lalo Medina, Jack White's tour manager, of course, for many, many years. We had Lola Kirk, Third Man Records recording artist and bona fide Hollywood celebrity. Uh, so that was a lot of fun. Cash and Sky, more Third Man Records recording artists. And also we'd like to congratulate Henry Cash on his uh, record deal with his other band Starcrawler. It's been really great. So watching Starcrawler's meteoric rise, that's been really, really fun. Also, we invited on the show John Krautner from the band The Go one of our favorite Detroit rock staples, as well as Stuart Sykes, who was the engineer on the White Blood Cells album. And uh, we also welcome back some returning guests. Uh, April March joined us to talk about her new record, Incinerama. We welcome back Mr. Ben Blackwell um, to talk about all the Third Man Records happenings in 2021. And then returning guest, Warstick founder Ben Jenkins also brought on Warstick president Christine Edgington to talk about the Deep Ellum storefront opening, and that was so much fun. Actually, we had a lot more guests, but these were the 
the highlights that we picked out for the extended interviews episode. We hope you all enjoy this one. It's uh, sort of sad being away for the summer, but we miss you all very much, and we hope you enjoy this uh, this compilation we put together while we prepare Season 7. Uh, season 7 is going to be full of a lot of uh, new interviews, hopefully, and um, some great analysis of Jack White's two new albums. I don't know about you all, but I've just been spinning Entering Heaven Alive just nonstop. I mean, that album is something else. In my opinion, his best since Lazaretto. I just absolutely adore that one. So uh, anyway, if you have reviews of the Supply Chain Issues Tour, or if you'd like to send us a review of either Fear of the Dawn or Entering Heaven Alive, please make sure you do that. Go ahead and record yourself. Uh, it doesn't matter what kind of recorder you use. could be just your, your phone. Go ahead and send us those reviews, and we'll run them on the show. So without further ado, we'd like to kick it now to our best of compilation. Everybody have a great rest of your summer, and we'll talk to you very, very soon. All right, everybody. See you on the show. Welcome, Lalo, to the Third Men Podcast. I am so happy. I got this big grin on my face. I'm very happy here. 2007, what a time to join up with Jack. That's why. Yeah, yeah it was It was pretty amazing to me. you know. And, and I made the jump from the Mars Volta to the White Stripes. And I thought, well, it, you know, it's funny. As like, I've been lucky to work with really great bands. And all of those bands I've had great relationships with. I really love those people. You have to, you know, you get really dug into their lives because you're telling them where to go and what to do in a sense, not what to do creatively, just like you got to be here at this time and do that, you know, the logistic stuff. Right. And at least for someone like me, I I do that, you know, very much from a very caring perspective, I guess. But no, I, I, I operate very much from a level of love, not to get corny. And, and, you know, the more deeply you get in, the more deeply you're entrenched in someone's, professional lives and then it becomes yeah yeah great personally as well it seems like a lot of the bands you've managed had very similar vibes i mean they're not all the same kind of genre and stuff but were there any favorite musical groups or anything like that growing up that might have led to this sort of thing oh yeah my musical history yeah no i didn't really and i say this with all respect to everyone i work with but music wasn't my overriding thing when I was growing up, you know, I, lo- I liked it, of course. And I say this because I'm around, obviously, people whose music has been in their entire lives. It's their entire existence. You know, they're, mm. they're, they're driven by it creatively, emotionally, everything. But it, that's never been like that for me. I was not really sure what I was into, but I really I was kind of into uh, why well, I knew what I, what I was into. I was always I was like a student body president the line leader in second grade. And you know, I was the kid who liked being telling, you know, sort of organizing <laughs> and telling people, okay, if you need help, I'm here to help. And where can I, you know, go this way, go that way. You know, I yeah. was always, like I said, I, I was, um, I was the line leader in second grade. And I think that's where it started because I <laughs> got really obsessed with having the straightest line in school. Wow. 
Lion leader is a, being called me a teacher's pet and a nerd. And I, and I was like, I don't care. <laughs> I got the straightest line in second grade. Yeah. <laughs> so it's an important job, line leader. Am you're right in the middle of that alphabet there. So you would have been right in the middle. It sounds like you had to really fight and claw your way to get to the top. No, no, no. I, I went, I, and this was the, another lesson I learned. If I went straight to the top, I went straight to the teacher first day and <laughs> said, I'm here to help. There's some life lessons here, I think, actually. <laughs> no, but but seriously, that that was, you know, that's really kind of my motivating factor. So it was never, music seriously came out of nowhere. And the band connection is really, turns out, now my musical taste, but it wasn't my decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Ozo Motley guys I met just sort of randomly. That's another long story, which I'll tell you for part two of <laughs> No, um, I mean you're more than welcome to come on for a part two, please. No, 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 no. That's a that's that's. I'm gonna need a drink for that story. No, but um, <laughs> it's just one leads to another. I think I got to the Mars Volta because Jurassic Five shared a business manager with Sparta, which was the other half of At the Drive and Broke Up. There's the other band, and then that led to Mars Volta because of Sparta connection, Common Crew. And then the Jack thing, again, the white stripes thing is because I happen to be, you know, on tour. I, I guess there is also, I should mention, an important note there. It wasn't just Peter, obviously, that hired me. It came from Ian uh, as well. Because, in fact, it was Ian's idea, I'm sure, yeah. uh, come to think of it, because he told me very early on, we'd like to get you to, I think when I, when I met him first, when I started, when I was with Jurassic 5, I think he's like, we got to get you on board with us and work with us. And I was like, yeah, you call me anytime, you know. <laughs> and then eventually he called, but uh, you know, but and that actually was way before I met Peter. So Ian deserves a lot of credit as well for my career, uh, as it were. Ian Montone. Yeah, Ian Montone, Jack's uh, manager. And um, for the last, also several years, for the last, I think almost all of those fourteen years, I've been also working for Ian uh, in the management office. So. Um, I help him in the touring of his other clients, just sort of helping them put it together, but not not touring it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's just it's just been like fortuitous to meet one great person after another that's led me to a very satisfying and fulfilling career as Jack's tour manager, which <laughs> I hope to do until I grow more grays. <laughs> I go full gray and bald. Did and then you I'll Jack <laughs> to retire? It's sort of a side question, but friend of mine, Blake. Kobashigawa used to work for Montone. Do you ever run in with Blake? Yeah, Blake? yeah, sure. Blake yeah. was Blake worked the uh, work the desk, worked Ian's desk, <laughs> which is no easy task because the man is very very busy. Lovely person to work with though, uh, but he's just you know he, this is yeah. I don't know what happened or whatever why he's not around. I think he just got different opportunities, but I understand he's doing really great now, right? They don't let people with hair like that into jail. I don't think. Yeah, that's a free pass. That's a freebie. <laughs> yeah. <that> one. <laughs> Um, that was a long way of answering your question that I don't give a shit about music. (laughs) Um, I do say this often though, that music has literally nothing to do with my job Yep. because I don't perform it. I don't, I'm not responsible for any of it. You know, thank God there's guitar techs and sound engineers and a wonderful team of people that help do all the stuff to be a part of that team. All I do is just lead the ship from point A to point B, you know. How well do you know me? 
My job is, is to receive an idea. First of all, my always try to be my initial reaction is yes, let's see if we can make this work. But then, you know, sometimes logistics get in the way of a great plan. And I don't remember specifics because I have a terrible memory. <laughs> in fact, I have such a terrible memory. I forgot the question. <laughs> has there ever been like a no, you cannot do this? Like, has he ever wanted to play in a druid container like in Spinal Tap? And you were just like, listen, we're not, we can't. I don't even know where to get a big druid rock. I, I can't. I mean, you, you talk to Wayne Coyne and he'll, he'll let you know, yeah. I'm assuming. I'd rather tell you about something that he came up with spontaneously and asked if it's possible on the day. And, and we were like, well, yeah, let's try it. So Roseland Ballroom. Ah, 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 I was there. I was there. I you was there? there. I was going to bring this up. I was there. I was there. That was one of the most exciting, memorable shows, not just of Jack, but I've ever seen. It was just, oh, man. So we're at Soundcheck, and it, we were soundchecking the women band for the main set stage and he looks over at i don't know if you know for your you know it but for your listeners or viewers roseland ballroom had the old school style dance ballroom stage in the middle of this oval dance floor not unlike the palladium in la but since they started doing rock and roll shows they took that old and fairly small stage and converted into like this vip deck where they sold you know, tickets at the edge of this stage and little tables and it's elevated obviously because it's an old stage and now you have a direct view of this end stage. So they moved the stage over here. The fans now are, the VIP fans have their tables there and then everyone behind is standing room only SOR for general VIPs for your friends and family. But the, all those tables were sold. So, so Jack asks, can we have maybe in the encore break, we come back and we the band plays on that stage. And we were like, well, huh, can we? So of course we asked the building and, and that's when they tell us, well, actually we've already sold, you know, these VIP tables right in the front of the stage. They it covers the, it takes up the first 10 feet of the stage. And we're like, well, so we tell Jack and we're like, well, then we look at it and we're like, well, actually, isn't there a curtain there that we can just curtain off behind them? They're like, yeah, but what about your VIPs? Like, screw our VIPs. <laughs> they can watch the show with everybody else. Actually, there's another balcony on the other side, so we put most of them there. But we ended up, um, normally that curtain is never closed. But, of course, nobody noticed. So during the show, the curtain was drawn, the gear was set up, and all these VIP people had, I think there were like five or six, four top tables, and all these people sitting down enjoying the show. When during the show because now the gear is behind them on the second stage, right? Yeah. So during the show, right at the, sort of at the end, when I feel the encore might be coming, and again, there's no set list, so I have no idea when the encore is coming. So I have to tell these poor people, I said, listen, I'm going to come and tell you to leave in a hurry, and you just have to listen. <laughs> I have no time to explain. And by the way, there's a rock and roll concert going on. I have to yell in these people's ears, get up when I tell you to get up, okay? And they're like, yeah, okay. So sure enough, the encore break is happening. And while they're cooling down and we get the band secretly on stage behind the curtain, but we didn't want it to be too obvious and have them move during the encore break. We wanted to get the band in place first and not tell those people to move until right before it happened. So curtains ready to be drawn. We rushed and told all 
50 people to get up and we had all these crew come and help us and we just moved all the tables and chairs and all the people parted the curtains part and while the audience is looking this way you know facing the end stage another totally different band starts playing behind this curtain the guy band and it was just like First, nobody knew how to react, right? Because everyone's like, where the hell is that coming from? How well you know? How well you know? would like to welcome to the third bend podcast Stuart sykes we're so excited for you to join us here on the program today Stuart. thank you for taking the time yeah thanks for asking yeah it's great to have you and we've certainly seen your name a bunch in our research for various albums most notably white blood cells and, and van leer rose and stuff so it's great to talk to you and we're super excited to hear some stories I hope I can deliver. <laughs> <laughs> One of the reasons why we wanted to talk to you today is because we're really, really excited about the White Blood Cells Double X, I guess you call it, or 20th anniversary vault package that just came out. And the reason you're involved in that, of course, for everybody who got the vault, is you engineered the album White Blood Cells with Jack White. And you were with the band through the recording of that album, which is so exciting. And there's a wonderful DVD that comes with the vault package where you can see you and Jack and Meg and Dave Swanson sort of hanging in the studio and putting things together. And it was just so exciting for us to see footage like that because we've never really seen anything to that degree before of the recording process of a White Stripes album. And then, of course, you were also involved in the Van Leer Rose effort, which was the Loretta Lynn album that Jack produced and led to the creation of the Rack and Tours. So you've had a lot of involvement in the third man world at some pretty pivotal moments, sir. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I guess there's some luck involved in that, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of weird talking about a record that was done so amazingly fast. Yeah. With the white stripes, like I think we might have changed at one point. Like, so they it was all in the room, like the amps and the drums were all in the same room. And I remember we moved Jack a lot closer, like his amp and everything, a lot closer to the drums just to try and make the room smaller, <laughs> right? As far as so they could just feel more like they're in their rehearsal space, sure, which I think that helped. And we saw Meg uh, was on the floor in a sleeping bag at some point uh, while Jack was doing his uh, vocal takes, which is <laughs> which is pretty cool. That's a way to make somebody feel comfortable. <laughs> sure, I need to. I, I want to. I sort of half of me really wants to watch that video, and half of it, half of me does not. You come across looking quite cool. I have to say, it's not just because you're yeah, talking right. to us today. First. You, you did it. <laughs> no, but you look like you look like you're sort of like in charge right like you look like you're moving things around you're making shit happen you know what i mean it looks like you're you're the you're the boss not the boss but the boss you know what i mean 
Yeah. I have a qu- <laughs> I have a question for you actually about the tall room, and this is maybe more of like a music theory question that I just don't understand, but. We've seen, like, I mean, James and I are big Beatle fans, so there's a difference between Studio 2 and Studio 3 at EMI in London because one has very, very high ceilings, one has very, very low ceilings. So, like, for instance, the Beatles used to record in 2, but when John and Yoko did Plastic Ono Band, they recorded in 3, which had the low ceilings and the brick. I'm wondering, what can you tell us about the kind of sound you get from a room that is shaped like the one at Easley McCain? Like... I noticed the the different plating on the wall. Is that just about letting the sound waves rise or something? I don't have the vocabulary, but I'm wondering well, if you can tell. Okay, so like, I guess maybe the easiest way you can think of it is like, so you move into a new house and you walk into your tiny bedroom and you clap. Yeah, it sounds like shit's zinging all over the place and it does right. not. It's not a pleasing sound. And then go <laughs> to a church you know, a big cathedral and do the same thing and listen to to how disperse and nice it's It probably deepens the the sound a little bit too, a little bit. Uh, I mean, a larger room is the sound has more time to disperse and you're not dealing with as many like early reflections, which causes phase. And, you know, there's a lot smarter people with acoustics (laughs) than me, but... I mean, on this call, you are a PhD compared to Paul, so there's that. All right. Well, that's an an elementary school description for you. Find a place that's neutral and get it in our minds now that the feeling. Well, and from what I've heard, uh, reading about the recording of it, he told you to make it sound or not make it sound too good either which well, kind of that might have been taken i i know i did say that um <laughs> <laughs> we can take it back we could look we could clear the air set, set the record straight i think what he meant was like as for going into a bigger studio and a professional studio like the, i think what he was really saying was like don't make it sound like a motley crew record or something you know what i mean oh for sure like it's I, not there was with, it wasn't any intention to be like, oh well, hold on, let me detune the snare a little bit so it sounds shittier, or you know, I mean, it wasn't. <laughs> there was nothing like that. Yeah, but what you're saying completely falls in line with what we know about the band and the band's not aesthetic, but like they didn't want it to sound like an overproduced pop record. They wanted it to sound a little grittier to match kind of the tone of the the music. The live set, basically, yeah. and yeah, they well, yeah, you gotta. You have to somehow produce their electric, the two of them, the feeling of those two playing together on a record. If you were to slick it up, you would not be doing this podcast right now. (laughs) I think they even, is it on White Blood Cells? One of the B-sides is like the pop version of one of the songs. Paul, am I remembering that correct? That's from Distill. Distill, okay. But like... He knows what he wants in terms of sound from, like Paul said, to match the live set feeling. Because like he wants you to hear the the warts of the music. He wants you to kind of see. Well, it's all about the energy between yeah. the two people and how that how you project that. Right. You got to fight it a little bit. You can't have uh, just you can't over slick it too much. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I also think it plays into like Meg didn't think they were ready, and I, I'm positive Jack did that on purpose. <laughs> I'm sure he did. That sounds right up right like <laughs> something he'd do. 
leaves on the dirty ground. So how familiar were you with the Stripes prior to them recording their they were not a particularly well-known group at that point. As you mentioned, they had put out two records on Sympathy, but they weren't exactly a, uh, a worldwide phenomenon. They were more of like a kind of a, I guess, a tastemaker sort of group amongst a, a select few people who were maybe in the know at that time. So did, did you have any familiarity? Did you listen to the first two records before you started in on making this one? Well, so when we booked it, I didn't know who they were, but... I had friends that were pretty psyched that they were coming. Welcome to the Third Men Podcast. Returning guest, Mr. Ben Jenkins, the founder, CEO, design director, Warstick. And Ben, you've you've been on the show a couple times. It's been a long t- it's been a little while since we talked to you. Hello, how are you? I'm great, man. I'm 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 in a I feel like it's a whole new world um, <laughs> from when we last talked, which I don't know, maybe it's a year ago. So Something yeah, it's like been busy. It's been busy and um, you know coming out of COVID and all kinds of stuff, but it just feels like a whole new world over here. So I'm glad to catch up. It's a great time to catch up. Yes. Well, welcome back. And we'd also like to welcome someone who's new to the show we've never talked to before, except about the Tasmanian Devil's Coke habit before the call here, (laughs) Ms. Christine Edgington, president of Warstick. Christine, welcome. Oh, thanks. I hope I can live up to that intro. (laughs) 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 <laughs> so we're talking here this morning to uh, to chat a little bit about some exciting news in the Warstick family, within the Warstick family. Now, this has been something in the works for a long time now. In fact, I think we even talked about this, Ben, when you were first on, which is going back <sighs> three <laughs> years or so, yeah. four, three or four years. So why don't you, uh, can, can you both give us a bit of background on the opening of Warstick Headquarters. This is fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I'm. I agree with you that it, it was a long time ago, and <laughs> kind of, <laughs> kind of embarrassingly so, to be honest with you. Um, and but I think looking back, it's like you know, our personalities, and especially Jack's personality, who drove this whole project. I mean, there's no 100. percent This project would not exist without Jack. So I was maybe 2017. Embarrassingly, found this building. It's a neighborhood that I've known all my life and even uh, lived and worked there and very creative neighborhood and um you know as things go with jack i'm like hey uh man i found this building today i thought it was super cool it was kind of like someday man it would be really cool to do xyz right right you know how jack is he sees it he's like that's perfect let's buy it <laughs> <laughs> now, now you're talking about 2900 Main Street. Yeah, 2900 Main Street. So it's like a 1941 building, and it's a gorgeous building too. Just, the, yeah. just on the street, it looks very Americana, very you know, sort of. 
and, and, at the, and at the time, I thought, oh, no, this is too expensive. This is too soon for the business, which is absolutely true. And Jack just has that vision. When he knows it's right, he knows it's right. And I agreed with him. I was just like, are you sure you want to do this? This would really put – this would be sticking our necks out really big. But it's that kind of like, well, this is what we believe in and we're going to do. And then Christine is kind of all the, always the voice that's like, let me think about these numbers here and all that kind of stuff. And she's like, look, yeah, it could kill you in the end, but if it works, it'll be amazing. And so, you know, what happened from there was just, we, we got the building wrapped up pretty fast, but you know, we really, Christine and I and, and our staff, we had to focus on growing the business. We were still very much getting going and it was just like this fun toy over here. <laughs> was as cool as it is it wasn't going to just grow the business for us it is it, something so it, it was almost like this motivation now to go really do the hard work of growing the business and becoming like a mainstream brand in baseball me and paul have been watching warstick grow since talking to ben last and you know following your instagram and your social stuff and and it really does you know it's it's reached this level where the content and the products you're putting out are so cool and and it's so nice to be able to have a physical location to to kind of look at those now i I think that's the thing we're most excited about because i i know ben's probably going to get into this on the why because we have for the entirety of warstick and all of our growth been online been a virtual business so why did we kind of focus so much time and attention and energy on building a physical space and Because I do think that the brand and the messaging and what we're really trying to do to connect with our customer base, there's only so much we can do in a virtual environment. And having a home base where we can create that content and have parents and players come and learn uh, on all sorts of different subjects within our messaging and culture that we're trying to communicate into the world is so much more, I think, compelling when we have a physical space that we can be creating those experiences with. You guys put in the time to set a perfect table for this aspect of the business, I think, because there is so much uh, to be able to, to test and promote and, and look at and excitement around the brand, too. So, I mean, I think all these kind of projects, like you always want them to go super fast, and it's frustrating that it takes so long, and it honestly felt like it would never end, but... You, you always look back and, <clears throat> and to your point, it's like we wouldn't have done the things that we've done along in each aspect if we hadn't learned about ourselves and our brand and our customers along the way. So it's just a necessary part of the journey of getting it done. And it's like I'm glad in hindsight, I never would have done it again. But I'm, we're all glad that it took so long, that we took our time, that we, you know, collaborating with Jack when he could, you know, I mean, he was locked down in COVID like everybody else. And so the collaboration aspect of going back and forth was challenging a lot of zoom calls a lot of you know i mean just a lot of back and forth and he couldn't be in dallas all the time there was key moments when we brought him in but yeah it was just challenging you know but no regrets man thank god we like it in the end (laughs) (laughs) what's what's jack white on a zoom call like Uh, i I was wondering the same exact question like is he is he also fumbling for the the end call button and hitting it and (laughs) smiling the whole time (laughs) no i mean honestly the opposite on that laptop which we call his phone (laughs) 
he's as technologically advanced as anyone. I mean, he's that thing is connected to him just like the rest of us, man. And he's he's I mean, he's he's he runs his own businesses. He's he's doing Zoom calls like the rest of us. And I would say the thing that's different is there's always a five minute intro of comedy before the meeting starts. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> See, that's what I was looking for. I, the implication. Christine's the implication, in one of the left-hand corner screens going, wrap it up. <laughs> and, you know, that's just Jack. Cause, I mean, he's always bringing, I mean, he's always in a great mood and just wants to have fun with people first and foremost and, you know, get, get, a good, get the meeting off to a good tone. And then, and then we always have to go, okay, guys. And then we all fall for it and we do the same thing, but it's, you know. <laughs> But then he gets, you know, he has that switch just like we all, like a lot of us creative people do. Like when it's time to go, it's like, boom, then the, then the Jekyll and Jide comes out. Heckle and Jide come. What, who's that? Jekyll, Jekyll and Hyde. Jekyll and Hyde. You know, when he gets serious about design, like it just gets serious. I mean, it's, it, Jack's got the two personalities. I mean, it's, it's, he's incredibly sweet, yeah. amazingly funny, genuine person. And then the artist in him is super serious and super intense and all this kind of stuff. And (laughs) that's where he and I share that, like, we have to be careful when we're, you know, working around people that we're not so in our own zone that we don't, you know, we're, we're hearing other people, to be honest with you. But that's that laser focus kind of craziness that if we didn't have, on the other hand, you know, none of this stuff would get created. Christine's one of the only humans that, and she's downplaying herself. She's over the last 20 years become, you know, very creative in terms of I bounce every idea off her and all that kind of stuff. But she's somehow always nice to people and, and, and very pleasant. Um, (laughs) Me and Jack, like, we're always like, man, she's just so nice all the time. How do we do that? So (laughs) all of the contractors that work on the building might not agree with that. Yeah, that's true.
And today, we've got a third co-host-ish, yeah, sort of. We, we have somebody who we disappoint with some regularity. Yeah, joining us <laughs> on the show today, <laughs> who tolerates us, and we are very much appreciative of it, and it makes us happy. And it's Ben Blackwell, and he's here. How's it going? Hi, it's Ben. Going fine. I've been hey, hey Ben. I've been badgering Paul with this for about five days now. How do you like the nickname, the Cast Clown? The Cast Clown. I'll take it. <laughs> All right, wow. cool. All right, he took it. I, he took it, and now I don't know what to do with myself. Yeah, I was betting. No. I used to. I used to get in, uh, in. There was a name floating around. I think it was maybe more so uh, ascribed to my brother in high school, and that was that was Snackwell. And uh, pretty good. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty. It, you know, I was just telling someone yesterday. You you don't get to pick your nickname. A nickname that has not aged well because the snack wells no longer exist. Right. Attention shoppers! Reduced fat snack wells cream sandwich cookies have just arrived in aisle three. That's aisle three. <laughs> You know, there's other reduced fat cookies besides snack wells. Oh, we tasted them, Cookie Man. You eat them. Third Man London opened up a hell of an opening. We get a new concert. We get the official debut of Jack's new hair, which is beautiful. <laughs> Magic marker. All of these new releases, it's wild. We get finally get uh, the absurd scam is lifted. I can't wait for Swank's Muscle Milk or whatever that that place is. Uh, <laughs> muscle I, I Muscle Tea Emporium. Yeah. Yes, I can't wait for that to open. Although <laughs> Swank should venture into Muscle Milk too. That would be a whole new <laughs> whole new thing. I have to say, I have to say, you know, the funny thing is about you know we mailed those invites to. I think it was everyone who is a in the subscriber world. in the UK. And being outside the store on that opening day, it was funny how many people told us, oh, yeah, I threw it away. I, I had no, like they did not, like the, like to us, it, the idea was this is so obvious. This is so clear where this is coming from. But apparently we didn't know that in the UK that junk mail there is like, 10 times more omnipresent than here in the United States. So people just get tons and tons and tons of bullshit in the mail that they just pay no attention to. So it was like, oh, wow, there was a lot, a lot at play that we didn't even know about that worked to our advantage. But yeah, I slightly interrupted you. Was there a question there? Uh, <laughs> uh, well, we mentioned that we did a whole spotlight episode in the London opening already, but can you tell us a point in which you realized that the, wouldn't it be nice to open a storefront in London was kind of turning into a, hey, I think we're actually opening a storefront in London. Basically, when did this idea get kind of serious? I know that the idea was kind of brewing for a while and then the pandemic kind of gave you guys the time to be able to get it ready. But like, was it really going to happen before the pandemic? Like, was it kind of on the back burner? And then it, I mean, we, the, the, the earnest conversations were 2019 Mm -hmm. and then like actual boots on the ground started in 2020. And we still thought we may, you know, at the time we thought, oh, we, we might be able to do this in 2020. And then like, as like maybe 
<sighs> midway through the year, it's like, uh, yeah, this might just be like a, a little bit of a holding pattern. Um, but we'll see. But ultimately, it felt it felt like it, it worked. I could not have imagined it, that opening being any better in terms of rollout, in terms of, you know, reception. I mean, we've done a couple of these things now, and they, <laughs> they're fun. They're a lot of work, but they're incredibly rewarding. Just, you know, that a sense of accomplishment style. So, Well, we have actually opened in my editing right now is an episode with Ben Jenkins and Christine Edgington, where we talk about the other big one that Jack had this year, the Warstick HQ as well. So but between those oh, yeah. things, it was a, a phenomenal uh, year in just in terms of those kind of big live events. And it's just yeah. great. It's just great to see Jack out there and he looks happy and he looks energized. And James made, made a comment about the hair. We fucking love the hair. I mean, it feels new. And he, he, I don't know if you could, if you, obviously you can't speak for Jack, but there does seem to be a particular kind of happiness and energy about him with this particular set of circumstances and these new albums. Have you detected that kind of shift in him at all? Um, let me think. You know, I think it's just, you know, when you you find that spark of inspiration, you chase it. And there's just been an inspiring year. There's been lots of stuff going on. Can you guys be quiet out there? <laughs> I'm trying to poop. <laughs> I knew that wouldn't laugh. I knew that wouldn't be able to keep quiet. It's, it's okay. I know we've, we've taken a lot of your time, so yeah, it's... I think it's I think it's just an exciting it's an exciting time period on a thousand different levels. And so you know, London was crazy too because we had we were prepared to have taking me back out as a seven inch at the London yeah. opening. We we had a question about this. Yeah. Yeah. And we were just like, okay, we're gonna do it and it's gonna happen and it'll roll out in its own way. And then at some point we're just like you know, if Jack plays a show and he has a new record out and he, and we're talking about him playing the song at the show, right? that will be, that's difficult. That becomes the fourth line in your news story is third man London opens, you know, because all that other stuff seems far more okay. attention headline grabbing. And so we're like, you know what, let's not take that attention away. Let's, 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 to rethink what we're doing here. So we had theorized, well, I had theorized and James said I was wrong, which I guess I am wrong now confirmed. I thought maybe it had something to do with the, the video game thing because the call of duty licensing, the, the yeah. call of duty licensing. Cause they might've wanted that first bite at the apple, but um, I guess I was wrong. Uh, London singles together was that Swank? 
Uh, it's a little bit of Ben Swags, a little bit of Dave Buick in Detroit. Okay. Um, and then some of our London team too. Uh, yeah. I think Camille and Molly over there had had their hands in a couple of different things. But yeah, like total total group effort. Yeah, we had thought. Uh, I think Jack mentioned in an interview that because Ben had even lived over there for a while, he was just really, really ensconced in the scene. Um, oh yeah, that's hundred percent. Yeah. Like he, that was like, that was a lot of our advantage was, was his knowledge of just general knowledge of things there. Right. Uh, it was very, very helpful. That Ruffin record is excellent, by the way, really, really wild uh, to hear that. And we, it's just so, it's so crazy. I think I read in the official copy that it was unclear, like why it never came out or there was some kind of like. Yeah. Yeah. Confusing, confusing as all hell. And we had thought that that artwork was original artwork. And then the guy that, that actually put it together in whatever the two thousands for the CD release was like, it's not original. This is from 20 years ago. Um, He's like, but that's the greatest compliment I could have ever gotten. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. Cause 20 years ago they put it out on the, in a CD collection, I think. Yeah. It was CD only. And so, um, Whoever, you know, handed us the file from, you know, the Motown archives, like, yep, that's the original artwork. Whatever. We have joining us again, we have April March. Welcome back, April. It's nice to see you. It's nice to see you too. And we also have joining us Mehdi Zanad, who is known as Fugu and has worked with you on your new record in Cinerama. Mehdi, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so, of course, we're talking about in Cinerama, which I happen to have here. Well, there's your head sort of floating around on the zoom here (laughs) uh i love this record so much holy crap you both did amazing amazing work together phenomenal thank you big thing for me was just knowing about um well i was just excited to have all these other friends singing on it yeah all these other female vocalist friends so that was very like i thought a lot about that and i think Maddie did too like when we when the songs were arranged it was always like okay but petra and rachel are going to be singing on this so or keep in mind that, you know, Lola and Bennett are on this. I think they were always very present, right, Mehdi? In yeah. our minds. Yeah, sure. There needed, yeah, to, there needed to be a lot of space for them. Like, for instance, um, you know, like Rolla Rolla, uh, those those backing vocals, I just think are so great. But it's, it's very, you know, like I cast them very specifically. Like Lola Kirk is... She's very like kind of sexy and um, <laughs> it's a totally different voice. It's not the same as the Haydens 
And then Planet has a very particular voice. So you put the whole thing together. And so, you know, it's like a, it's a whole little world. Yeah. But with other vocalists. And then of course, you know, you get a song where you have Tony Allen and then Marilyn Wilson. So you've got the Beach Boys (laughs) and Afrobeat. (laughs) For me, that was just, um, I think that was a lot of the love too. I mean, I loved the music, but to have all these, mm. I mean, that's my, you know, cause I, everything sort of goes girl group for me at some point. Cause that's just my roots. Yeah. yeah. And so this was really the first record besides, you know, my first band, the Pussy Willows, where we were like really going for it. Yeah. Like it really was like just mm. more and more and more like on ride or divide. Um, I love those backing vocals. I just love them. There's a point where yeah. Lola's doing this whole thing, which is just like, whoa, you know, and it's this beautiful arrangement that Medi wrote. Yeah. Um, I, uh, in the, the middle of the song, she says, uh, she says, carry to me or something like that. And it's just, uh, I don't know. It sounds like, <laughs> I don't know what it sounds like. It's sort of like chocolate watch band meets. Yeah. That's, that's, you know, this whole yeah. sort of like, it's not even girl group, but you know, maybe more a little bit more like the mamas and the papas, like that era more mm-hmm. than yeah. girl group era. So for me, like, you know, vis-a-vis just saying like my vocals are different. I think that's a big difference. Is it's a real joy for me to sing with a whole bunch of, you know, girls. Cause you know, often um like when we were doing um I don't think I did that with Lola's vocals were done in, in New York. And I don't think, Oh yeah. I think I did sing a little bit off mic with her too. Cause usually if you just have one vocalist singing, you need to fill it out a little bit. So I would stand like, you know, maybe like eight feet away from the mic just to fill it out a little bit. Right. But it's so much fun. There's nothing funner for me than singing with other people. like to welcome to the third men podcast henry cash and sophia sky of cash and sky henry and sophia hi welcome hey how you doing we're good we're We're so happy to have you on here we love the new single it's a pleasure to talk to you guys thank you so much for coming on yeah thanks for having us i feel like there was a big outpouring of everyone who was cooped up in 2020 and not working on their secret musical manifesto and then it all poured out in 2021 and there was so much beautiful (laughs) music and you guys are some of our favorite music i we love that single it's absolutely it's so awesome oh it's thank you
for me, we met when I was 15, he was 16. And in our generation, I feel like there's not a lot of people like really into good music. (laughs) We went to the same like arts high school and we both did music there. And it was so like refreshing to meet Henry, who also like knew who Tom Petty was and stuff. (laughs) And we like bonded over music like right away. Um, And that was just like really cool. Yeah, (laughs) that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, she she actually grew up with Arrow, who yeah. was in who's in my other band, Starcrawler. Yeah, and so I didn't know her, but we met at school and found out that she knew Arrow and Arrow's family, right? Because her parents are in music as well, so it was kind of like a, I don't know a bonding there too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, how did, how did you both get introduced to the Third Man kind of universe? Because obviously, rock and roll's in your blood, but were you guys fans of the White Stripes or Jack White's music or anything before that? Anything on the Third Man label? Yeah. How did you kind of get involved in there? Well, Jack White was my idol as a kid, and he still is. And, like, he's the best. And having the a record label that kind of does everything that I like, like I had Break Country, like that. Loretta Lynn record and like all the I love the Blue Room singles so I was always aware of it I was a vault member as a kid and I'd like wait in line to see his shows for like eight hours (laughs) I had a really crazy experience when I was I think 12 years old I went to a show and I like had to like take the train there and like saved up money and bought tickets through the vault website or something and I waited in line for eight hours and they must have saw me out there or something because when he was on stage, first of all, there was like all these like 40 something year old women that were like really hating that I was there that early because I was like taking spot or something. But I was like small. Um, <laughs> but he walked out on stage and he was like two songs in and he like calls over to his tech and he like puts his arm around and then he points down to me. And then all these women start getting like really excited that like, oh, go, they're pointing to me. And then Lalo comes down and he tries to pull me out of the crowd. And these women are like kicking my legs, oh, like no. trying to like get around me. And I'm like, they're alone. And then they're like, no, you. And they like pull me to the side and they're like, uh, you have friends on stage. You want to come back? You have friends on stage. And I said, oh, no, I don't. I'm here for the show. <laughs> and they're like, no you have a friend on stage. And then they pulled me over the barrier and got to watch the rest of the show from backstage. Wow. And he did it to two other kids that were in the audience as well. And these two girls that were like old, I was like maybe 12. And then they were like 15, 16 year old girls. And so it was just me and these two 16 year old girls standing there like in awe. And then he walks off stage at the end and he has this big bottle of champagne in his hand and he hands it to one of the girls that like, we're all standing like this together and then walks away. And it was like an amazing show. And like, they all walk off and then they're all gone, like walked backstage. Then the security guard opens the stage door and sees three teenagers holding a bottle of champagne (laughs) and throws us like, literally picks me up and throws me out the side stage door with these two girls. And like the girls are like crying and like, I'm like all sad. Wow. Wow. That is it was wild. really cool. That was your first Jack White concert too. <laughs> that, that was my second one, but they okay. were like two days in a row. It was the Fonda and Pomona. Yeah. Okay. 
That's but, um, amazing. It's a way better story than mine, in which I looked like a goober at 17 bringing drumsticks and, you know, three stories up in Madison Square Garden. <laughs> but, <laughs> Damn. I, well, I never got to see the White Stripes. It was... Well, we saw their like second to last show, something like that. It was yeah. Blue, yeah. Wow. So, Sophia, were you were you a fan at all? Or were you listening at all or not? Oh, not really. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love the White Stripes, and that it's kind of really surreal that we're we put out a single on third because like one of the first bands that me and Henry like ever like talked about or like one of our first conversations ever was about how much we loved the White Stripes. Yeah, which is just so cool. Um, <laughs> I grew up really like indie into like indie music and stuff like that and in that scene but when i found the white stripes when i was like 12 or 13 i was like whoa this is this is a whole nother level and it kind of just rocked my world like it was a crazy discovery um and i was so obsessed like every album front to back that was just all i listened to all day in middle school um so yeah it's kind of (laughs) such a crazy experience i don't have a crazy show story um henry yeah. took me to my first jack white show oh cool but where was that the mayan <laughs> yeah the mayan oh, oh nice for uh, the uh boarding house reach tour yeah yeah i was there i was there for that i was at that show yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> we waited in line for that one and we're front and center <laughs> oh that's awesome that's awesome yeah, yeah. Was- yeah that was a beautiful show i still have my i bought one of those los angeles who's with me shirts and honestly i i can't wear it anywhere because it seems either like i'm in scientology or something like it doesn't, <laughs> does it, like no one knows what it is so it's yeah. just hard to, um but anyway uh that's awesome uh and henry we're, we're gonna talk about starcrawler a little bit more later in the yeah. interview because obviously you playing there and there was release there yeah. um predating what your work with Sophia, but how did Cash and Sky wind up being released by Third Man? Like, how did that come together? Well, that sort of goes into like the whole Starcrawler world. Oh, okay, yeah. When Starcrawler first formed, we made a single uh, with this guy Stephen McDonald, who played in this rad band Red Cross. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we didn't have a bass player yet, so he played bass. And he also did, earlier, he did a White Stripes, he p- added bass to a White Stripes record. That the guy. Red Blood Cells. And it was yeah. Red Blood Cells, That's which right. was r- really cool. <laughs> he, he's known, like, the White Stripes. And Arrow's mom took the photos for Icky Thump and, like, a bunch of amazing White Stripes photos. Yeah. And so Arrow kind of grew up going... Like, just sort of being there as a little kid. So she sort of was in that range. And we sent our first single, Third Man, thinking that maybe, you know, they'd want to put it out. And they weren't interested. Wow. And so we were like, okay, cool. Like, And then we got on Rough Trade, which turned out to be really cool. And yeah. We went over to Europe and UK and did super well over there and, like, made a couple records. And then... Somewhere along the way, our manager also knew Ben Swank, yeah, and uh, and Ben Blackwell, and from like he was in this band, The Walkmen, and they were sort of in like similar like rad indie rock worlds. And it turned out that we were going to do this tour and play the Third Man Records. But before that, even we met Jack, he came to a show that we played with the Distillers in Nashville. Oh wow! And yeah. it was super rad and. After that, we played Third Man Records. And then, so on the tour, we played Third Man Records. Everybody there was super nice, and we had a great time and made a lot of friends over there. Yeah. And then we had this record, 
and thought, well, I don't really know anybody. We had to ask permission from Rough Trade. They didn't really want to do it. And I asked Third Man and they were like, yeah, we'll do it. Wow. So that it was amazing. So you both got the last laugh and uh, James and I can go ahead and rub that in the Ben's faces when next week. Yeah, talk, I mean, I did <laughs> did you uh, make fun of Ben for that, for uh, for turning you down at first? <laughs> yeah. No, and no, not, not at all. I'm kidding, obviously. Yeah, I'm glad it worked out the way it did. It's like one of those things where sometimes things just work and that worked out the best way it possibly could. I love everybody over at Third Man and it's so cool to do this project with them. Yeah. And... Doing the live singles with Starcrawler back to back because we did Detroit and then we drove overnight to the soundcheck to Nashville. Wow. And th- that was one of the best experiences in my life, just being able to record there. Amazing. I joked that I think I'm the first vault member to ever turn around and like record a record <laughs> on Third Man Live there. But uh, oh, you might awesome. be. It's, it's I might be. possible, yeah. We are so thrilled to be joined today by uh, Detroit music legend, I would say, institution, uh, <laughs> legend in his own lunchtime, John Krautner of the band The Go and uh, Solo Material and Conspiracy of Owls and all that stuff. John, thank you so, so much for joining us on the show today. Oh, it's my pleasure. All of our interviews over the past, you know, few years of people who have been a part of this music scene uh you know that camaraderie is kind of palpable like you could really kind of see that that is it's it's such an infectious like thing to 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 hear about because i'm like i want to be a part of that like i understand there's a lot of hardship and stuff and it's an escapism but like maybe not everybody's friends but everybody kind of agrees that you know, this is a great way to uh, escape and have fun. And the few clubs that were out there that you could go, you, you there was always a staple you could cling to, the go being one of them. I don't know. It's such an interesting time for music. I'm really inter- like interested in any found footage and stuff that we we get of those those clubs, especially like the ones that Neil Yee put together with when he recorded, you know, bands at the Gold Dollar and it's something that we've heard time and time again, that camaraderie. Was there any albums that kind of brought you together with, with anybody? Like I, I, I hear a lot of like people hear the Gories and MC five are typically bands that people connect over. Was there any uh, connections you've. you've well, you, yeah, I would say those, uh, the MC five and the Stooges were sort of Detroit's hometown pride of rock and roll. It's the brand. We are, selling to the rest of the world mm-hmm. it's just one of those things where the mc5 i mean jack just said it himself in a recent uh, video clip as a plea to the industry to open more vinyl pressing plants. as the mc5 once said you're either part of the problem or part of the solution thank you But Mick was still so active, you know, with the dirt bombs and stuff. I mean, I almost feel like you guys were, and again, this is just me sort of romanticizing it, but almost like troops in the in the trenches. And so even if you yeah. all weren't best buddies, 
you were all pushing toward a certain goal. You were all shoulder to shoulder. You know, we hear that in early White Stripes interviews too, where Jack talks about, you know, like, hey, I, you know, I'm going to bring, you know, I feel like our victory is all of our victories because it at yes. least gets the music out there. And, you know, of course, he brought on different um, D- Detroit acts, um, including you guys. I think you guys mm-hmm. played a couple shows with the White he Stripes. He brought us so. on tour in, your, in the UK. Yeah. For, uh, I think it was during the Elephant Tour. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which, which is, that was fun. Yeah, I can imagine any any elephant tour stories you want to share with us. Only, uh, you know, it, it was the crazy thing about it is just us going to the UK. That was crazy all by itself. But yeah, playing in front of two to four thousand people, Edinburgh, Scotland, opening up for the White Stripes and um, Rowan Heat. That's right. Uh, yeah. So it was all three of us, and it was such a weird feeling seeing a sea of red and white out, <laughs> out in the crowd. And you're wearing your regular rock and roll clothes that aren't, aren't red and white, they're earth tones and grays and blacks. <laughs> and just Jack's like, in the corner with his arms folded, yeah, disapprovingly shaking his head. Yeah. That part of it was a little nerve wracking, but. <laughs> We managed, we played like, uh, we we played like it was, you know, uh, our last show every night. I think we made some fans in along that tour. I think we converted some people. But uh, really it was, we were in awe because things were moving at a fast pace for Jack. Yeah. The White Stripes exploded in the UK. And uh, every time we took a, a, a the London tube, it was a giant advertisement on the, on the tiled wall of Jack and Meg. <laughs> that must you know, have been so people we, surreal. People we saw at this stinky bar just a few weeks ago. <laughs> and there's been more interest, I think, in tonight's entertainment than uh, within Radio 1 than in anything else that we've done that I can remember, and we're obviously very pleased about that. And uh, we hope that you're going to enjoy the rest of the programme and uh, the contribution of tonight's live band. I'm very impressed with the with the red trousers there, Jack, very similar to the ones that I wore for the Liverpool-Real Madrid final in Paris all those years ago. Uh, from the studio audience now, thunderous and well-deserved applause for the White Stripes. That must have been so surreal. Like almost like uh, having your I don't know your high school yearbook photo like plastered on the television or something. Like because you kind of I mean not grew up but musically grew up with these people. You know I did. I did. Yeah. yeah I mean uh, I was uh, nineteen. 18 or 19 when we started playing with, when I started playing with Bobby and Mark seriously. Yeah. So, you know, all my adulting that I had to learn, like everybody learns around that time was done in the context of being in a band and trying to get on the road, trying to rent cars and vans, uh, that kind of thing. That was my, uh, 
first lesson in adulthood. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't try to go for the owning a van uh, approach. I I think Co did that. Uh, (laughs) You're at you're at the supermarket picking out groupies. All right, you. Well, what the Go did was we uh, ended up our first opportunity to buy a vehicle to tour with. We (laughs) were hasty and bought a diesel fueled shuttle bus from a, a, a defunct shuttle bus from a local hospital in Farmington Hills. And they were, uh, we, we cleaned it out and we pulled up to Dave Buick's house and we were ready to get on the road. And we just wanted to see the look on his face. We didn't tell him uh, what kind of vehicle we were getting. It was a huge bus. And on the back of the bus were the letters Cutlass Supreme. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh the back God. of the bus was filled with dirt and mud um, <laughs> because the thing, it wasn't meant to go through Wyoming over the hills and through the valleys. It was meant to <laughs> take you to the emergency room from a few blocks away. So There was still a patient inside <laughs> desperately <laughs> waiting to get to the hospital. <laughs> did the go ever put anything out on, on Italy? We did. We put out kind of later in <clears throat> later in the game we put out yeah. a single of you go banging on yes. how long the haunted beat your ride back with uh, mary bell which is a non-lp b-side If I recall, Howl on the Haunted Beat Your Ride was an album you guys wrote on the Elephant Tour, correct? Am I misremembering that? Um, I, you know, I think we started to write some songs. Like, <clears throat> Actually, the I'm trying to think. Was that think- after the self-titled LP that we did the Elephant Tour before? No, I know Bobby had told us that you we're play testing those songs on the road. I don't know if it was during the elephant tour specifically. Okay. But, um, I remember him all the UK that- shows were kind of bundled up in the, mm-hmm. U- in the elephant tour, but we did have other business in the UK uh, with another label trying so, to get sorted out. The there. self-titled was 2003. So that would have, that would have um, coincided with the elephant tour. It would have coincided. Okay. Yeah. I couldn't tell if it was before or after it was right. Probably right there. But um, it was uh, really fun. We enjoyed our time on that tour. We have a very special guest with us today, Ms. Lola Kirk. Lola, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, 
my pleasure. Hi, guys. Hi. We're, Hi. we're such big fans of your music. Lady for Sale, your new album on Third Man Records, available now, is fantastic. We love it so, so, so much. Thank you. That means a lot to me. It's seriously a beautiful album. Pink Sky is perfect. I love it so much. So. <laughs> Yay! I'm very happy to hear that. Um, we hear a lot. We talk to a lot of vocalists on this program, and they often say that they went through a process of finding their voice and what their voice actually would be. And it's it's such a vulnerable thing because you're taking this private part of yourself and projecting it out. And mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people for seeing, like I think Cher, right? She had this terrible stage fright and stuff like that and it could be debilitating for some but I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about your vocal inspirations and maybe how you came about finding your own voice oh that's a really nice question <laughs> and and one that I'm like as I cough through my yeah. voice right now. Um, <laughs> finding my voice has been really challenging I started smoking when I was like 12. <laughs> and um, I had already had been told I had like a cool sounding like husky voice. And then, you know, I was this teenage smoker and I had always taken, I, we had music at my school and I would always take um, the uh, vo- voice class because I was like, that's the easiest one. Then you don't have to learn any actual instruments. Like, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> um, always looking for a way to, you know, skirt over true responsibility, which is weird because I'm a, I'm very much not like that now. But I was like the laziest kid in the world. Like all I wanted to do was watch TV and smoke pot. And now I'm really just not like that. But anyway, um, I took voice classes and I was like the worst singer in the class. I like, couldn't get like a single note out, but my teacher was this really fun, uh, fabulous man named Peter Clark. And Peter would always like have this wall of divas. And like, he would always like, look at me when I was singing, like, we did a lot of show tunes and I would always do cabaret because that was the easiest one with no range. Yeah. You could just kind of like talk sing. Um, and he was just like, you sound like you have emphysema. And I was like, no. Um, but I, so I was just kind of like lost. And then I started playing ukulele and, and singing a little bit later. And that was fun because I could like sing songs that I like to sing. Yeah. Like um, I started singing Crazy by Patsy Cline and Stand By Your Man and all this stuff. And and it was really like against, uh, there was a lot of adversity. Like literally no one wanted to hear me sing and play the ukulele. <laughs> like every time it would come out, <laughs> my friends would leave. <laughs> and um <laughs> I just, you know, (laughs) kept on doing it. And then I started playing guitar and I started writing my own songs. And I was always kind of aware that I had like a nice sounding voice, but like it could do very, very little. And it gave me a massive complex. And then I was doing a movie with my sister and I had to scream at my sister. And my sister is an infuriating person. And I actually screamed at her very, very loud. And I burst a blood vessel in my vocal cord. And oh after that, I, I mean, it was just like terrible. Like I would, I would go on tour and I would like lose my voice every five seconds. I was on vocal rest. I was going to have to get surgery. I did like six weeks of vocal rest. Blah, blah, blah. It just, it sucked. And then I started seeing this like mystic vocal healer who was so cool and always trying to convince me to be Polly, <laughs> which I love. And I was like, look, I'm a jealous bitch and I will never be Polly, but I like where you're going. I like the whole vibe. The I like your like, vibe. Yeah, yeah. He was so cool. He was just like, your voice is not broken. Stop thinking that. And 
that was amazing. And then I started just kind of de developing range. Like so much of my voice has been just about believing it. And Austin would hear me like sing like <laughs> Joe Cocker songs really like loud and I would like imitate Joe Cocker and he was like what are you talking like I mean I, they, they don't sound good but like he was like you can do a lot with your voice and it was really helpful to kind of discover through just like people being like you know you're wrong your your way you're seeing your voice is really limiting to you um because yeah. like when I hear you sing I hear all of this range and then like hearing vocalists like Tanya Tucker who I think have that range and that like kind of uh very distinct style but a lot of flexibility opened me up and something that austin just like would always challenge me to do when we were making this record was just like play yeah. and um and i think that that served the songs really nicely we have a uh, we have a quick lightning round here lola do you have time for a lightning round yes okay. i do let's do it all right let's cue the the workout music we're gonna put that up here okay go ahead God, great <laughs> yeah. So, um, as a as a New Yorker yourself, and me and Paul having con had connections to New Manhattan and Brooklyn, respectively, uh, what's what's the best slice in New York for you? Oh, the best slice, Joe's. Duh. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Um, who would win in a fight, Graham Parsons or Jane Fonda? Jane Fonda. <laughs> Easy. Okay. <laughs> I thought there was. You could scrap. knock him over with a feather. That that Graham Parsons. <laughs> <laughs> She's very scrappy. Um, yes. We, 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 we heard you're not much of a gear person, but uh, what's your favorite guitar? The black one. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Your wildest TM experience. Uh, do you mean my wildest transcendental meditation experience or tour yes. manager experience? No, 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 no. Transcendental, <laughs> transcendental meditation. Oh my God. Uh, well, I became really good friends with my uh, TM teacher, Janet Mul uh, Janet Hoffman. Janet Mulligan is my accountant. Sorry. <laughs> and, uh, Janet, I went to visit her in Fairfield, Iowa, which is the, the TM capital of the world. And um, I went to visit her and her father was like 105 and he was doing, they lived together in this beautiful house and they did TM every day and that's how we lived. And three months later, I was on an airplane that connected somewhere near Fairfield and she was on the plane. She's like, oh my God, Lola, so nice to see you. Oh my God, Janet, incredible to see you. How's your father? She lifts up her backpack. He goes, he's great, he's in here. She was going to New York with his ashes to spread them. <laughs> I thought, this woman. That is a wild TM experience, oh my God. <laughs> okay, wow. I mean, although your accountant can probably also tell you how to deduct, uh, you know, some other planes of existence, I'm it's assuming. It's true. Yeah. It's it's true, for sure. I'll write that off. <laughs> um, favorite, favorite White Stripes song? Ooh, I mean, the first one I ever heard. I, I you know, dance with the one that brought you. Uh, fell in love with the girl. Yeah, sure. Awesome. Awesome. Um, what's a song you wrote where you, when you heard the finished product, you went... Wow, that's damn good. I think Lady for Sale, honestly. All right. Yeah. All right. It's a great yeah. track. It's a great track. Thank you. Thank you. And we got we got your last one here. It's your 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 cliche island question here. You're 13 years old. You're spinning one record nonstop. What is it? Hijira by Joni Mitchell. Okay. Here you go. Yeah.
traveling in some vehicle I'm sitting in some cafe I defect her from the petty wars But shall shut love away There's comfort in melancholy When there's no need to explain It's just as natural as the weather In this moody sky today In our possessive coupling So much good The Third Man Podcast was created, edited, and produced by Paul and James Kaminsky. Our theme song, We're the Third Men, was recorded by the band Radkey, who can be found at radkey.net. To contact the show, visit thirdmenpodcast.com or email thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at the third men underscore podcast on Instagram, at third men cast on Twitter, and search the third men on Facebook. Thanks to our Patreon patrons, to everyone who has rated, reviewed, and subscribed, and see you next time. Hey everybody, Paul here with a quick message for you. As James and I mentioned many times on the show, this podcast is 100% not-for-profit and a labor of our love for music. We pride ourselves in bringing you interesting, timely content as we have these past 100-plus episodes. Podcasting is, however, a weirdly expensive process, and we actually lose money on hosting, time, equipment, advertising, and all the other little things that we need to do to make these shows for you. So, to help break even on some expenses like those, James and I have set up a Patreon account where you can, if you like chip in a few bucks to help keep the lights on it can be as much or as little as you can swing and all donations are greatly appreciated the last thing we want to do is hound anybody for cash so just know that listening to our show is always payment enough but if you would like to help us out that would be amazing all right it's all from me remember you can head to patreon.com slash third men podcast and a huge thank you to everyone who's donated already all right everybody i'll see you on the show and i'm wayne kaminsky You are all invited to join us on a magical mystery trip through the lives of the Beatles every week on the Yesterday and Today podcast. This show details the chronological journey of the world's most famous band using music, interviews, and rarities collected since the debut of John, Paul, George, and Ringo onto the world stage. We're a fan-made production and we're available now on iTunes and wherever you find your podcasts. So sit back, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. And uh, go ahead and send us...
drop off my grape. Good. Now he's sitting in the car. Awesome.